I am thrilled today to have with me Gary Anderson. Gary, welcome to the Platinum Passport Podcast. Thank you, Clinice. It's great to be here. As you paint the portrait of your life, and then as we talk about what your passion is right now, a lot of people are really going to be inspired because of our conversation today. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> so tell me, what was it like growing up for Gary? So I was one of four boys. We lived in the country in York County. We lived on a creek, a lot of crabbing and fishing. Some of my best memories are going with my grandfather and my grandmother to the farm on the York River and spending weekends out there. And uh, we were a very active family. We participated in a lot of sports, football, soccer, and tennis. And we were very engaged in the community. The community was always an important part of our family. So I had a relatively great childhood and then went on to uh, University of Richmond. And that was a good experience. I got involved in psychology courses. We had children come in from Richmond City and we evaluated them and mm -hmm. talked with them. And it really got my attention after the Vietnam War that there was a time that you wanted to help humanity. I got into teaching. I taught for a few years. My wife was a teacher. That set a course. That's where my passion started. I had these boys in my class. They weren't struggling. They'd given up hope in seventh and eighth grade science, physical and life science. I reached out to them, tried to help them, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know how. That's when I started my passion. When you say, Gary, that they had lost hope, and you didn't know how to help them, what made you feel like there's something here, but I'm not able to connect? When I was teaching science in 1972 through 1974, I kept them after school and worked with them and tried to help them read. I thought if I could teach them how to read, that they could do well in my science class because many of them couldn't read the book. One group, I took fishing the baddest kid in the school. And I was always attracted, <laughs> focused on the kids who were the most difficult. And this one student gave me a hard time in class, um, but you could tell that he just was frustrated. He quit in school. So I took Alvester and uh, Tom Dooley and Stevie fishing and we <laughs> caught fish. We had a ball. I have a picture of that actually. My wife took a picture. So I was back in that county uh, in York County 15 years later, and one of my students, I was at a football game, said, Mr. A, Mr. A, and she <laughs> came up, and I had no idea who that girl was. <laughs> <laughs> she told me she was married and had a couple of children, and as soon as she stopped talking about herself, I said, Alvester, have you ever heard anything about Alvester? Because he's the one that I really focused on helping and she said, I saw Alvester this summer. I said, what? You saw Alvester? What? what? Yeah, that was that. I couldn't believe it. What? And she said, I was going to the York River Post Office, which is right under the York River Bridge. Mm -hmm. And I glanced to the back of the post office, and there was Alvester sitting in a chair fishing. Fishing? Fishing, yes. Yes. How so great is that? Fishing his life till I took him. He'd never been to the mall. He'd never been out of York County, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. He'd mm -hmm. never been. And so 
we stayed in touch and he really taught me about poverty and I learned a lot of lessons. Uh, he wouldn't go back to school unless he had something new to wear. So I would take him to JC Penney's and buy him something and, and then he'd go back to school. It was a lesson and, and I, I really developed a passion because I felt like there was nobody in his corner. I felt like his mother was struggling. I went to his house and she came to the door and and she was very guarded and, and there was a number of children there. So I decided that I was going to reach out to these guys. So that set you on a course. And as you begin to think about ways that maybe you could have yes. an impact or an effect on your students, where did that lead you? What I did is I taught for three years and then I went back to school and, and got a master's in, as a school psychologist. And then for the next 33 years, I was a school psychologist. I had been told once I became a school psychologist, I could identify what the problem was and then ameliorate it and put them in special ed and we could deal with it. But that didn't work. I did that for 20 years and I was a lieutenant. I was evaluating children, put them in special ed, thinking that would help. But a school psychologist has a unique role because I was in a couple of small school systems in the Northern Neck and I evaluate these children as kindergartners. And then you had to evaluate them again every three years, third graders, sixth graders, ninth graders. So I gave many of these children four full evaluations, talked to their teachers, did a psychological battery. And it was very depressing because I thought I was trying to help them. Mm -hmm. But then when I evaluated them in fourth grade, they were still far behind and they were starting to get a little bit of an attitude. When I evaluated them in, in middle school, they had a chip on their shoulder and they experienced a lot of failure. I realized in the 90s after almost 20 years as a school psychologist, that what I was doing was not working. So I had to change my ways. That is such an interesting perspective to work for 20 years. That's almost like a longitudinal study to be yes. able to interact with these students for all of those years, to check back in every four years, and then to recognize, honestly, that's really not the way that we're going to make an impact with these students. What did you determine would be a better way to engage with students, to help them to make a change or to become even more engaged, but not only educationally, but even personally to become more engaged? In the 90s, I was working in Hanover County at a couple of Title I schools. I really got into prevention. I was head of the Hanover Child Protection Team, and we had seminars for the community. And I really wanted to uh, do something to prevent this problem before it happened. Mm -hmm. And so I remember sitting at my desk, and I had a stack of 15 or 20 folders. You always had a backlog of students who were referred to you. And I like to tell you a short story. So these two men were sitting on the riverbank and here comes this child flowing downstream, help, help. And so they jump in and they save the child. They bring the child to the bank and then they look out again. They hear help, help. And here comes four children going downstream. So one of them jumps in and the other one takes off and starts running upstream. 
Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm going upstream. I'm going to tackle the man that's throwing these children in the river. Mm -hmm. And I can almost remember that moment that my focus shifted. And I still evaluate the children, try to help them. But my real focus became, how can I prevent these children being thrown into the river? And I found out shortly thereafter, through the Hart Risley study, that children raised in poverty listen to approximately 12 million words before they get to school. And children raised in homes where there's a college student or something, listen to 42 million words. Mm. And there was this 30 million word gap of exposure in the home. No wonder, I thought, no wonder these children are not doing well. They start so far behind and they never catch up. Nobody is really invested language and stories into them like they did in, in my home. Every child needs that investment. There's no shortcut to it, but we found out that in elementary school, you can still invest stories and novels into them and let them ask questions. So I started doing that in my practice. I would get children referred to me and I would say to the parent or to the teacher, has anybody read a book to him? And she says, well, I don't have time in the class. We have to do SOLs and all. So I said, do you have a, a volunteer? She said, yes, I have a volunteer. Well, here's a couple books, The Sign of the Beaver. I would like you, the volunteer, to read this to him. And every time they started that process, <laughs> there was a significant change. You could see it in the children. You could see it in their eyes that somebody was spending time investing in them. And then we, we also gave books to the home and asked them to read to them. And if there was a parent and they read to them. And once you started that process, there was a change. That's what was happening in my mm -hmm. practice as a school psychologist. I see that you get very emotional about this. What connects so much with your heart as you think about this? That's a really good question. Uh, many of the students that I work with, I could see them failing. Mm -hmm. And then I'd read about them in the paper. And they were picked up in jail or shot or they went to the streets. Renard Phillips reading in the paper that he was killed. I wanted to do something to help prevent that. You can't prevent it all. But when they hit that wall in about the third grade after significant failure in kindergarten, first, second, and third, many of them quit trying. A lot of them were repeated again. So they failed twice. Basically, the message to them is, you know, you're a failure. They took that and identified with that. I'm a failure. I'm a reject. Mm -hmm. And then they behave that way. And it was more or less because of the system. The system graded them and gave them an F. You can make a big difference. You can. So I found a way. But then the big question is how you get it system-wide. Doing it with one child, that's nice. But how do you do it system-wide? So that became a quest. I formed a nonprofit called Read Aloud Virginia. And I am proactive and we made it read aloud to a child week, the third week in October, and tried to get parents to read books to them. We worked with the Library of Virginia, and they gave us $100,000 in many grants. 
and we started groups that were trying to tackle this problem. How do you get it done in the homes that don't have a literacy agenda, mm-hmm. that don't really have, they have a entertainment agenda, watching TV, movies, computers, playing video games. That was a challenge. How do you get this done? Obviously, I can tell you're very passionate about this. <laughs> and what I love about what you're saying is that the value of a child is not their grade, but it's really the person. It's the essence of who they are. And it seems like that with this particular program, even just spending that time reading with them, as you said, was an investment. And that is what connected with them. As you went on this quest, to find a way to make this even more system-wide than just one person at a time. What did you learn and how did it help you to evolve with the next organization or the next program that you created? So Relab Virginia was obviously Virginia focused. We were getting parents, volunteers to read aloud to children in Virginia. But I was also working with a number of organizations having conference call. There's a read aloud Delaware, read aloud West Virginia, read aloud Nebraska. So we were having conference calls and we realized on those conference calls that we needed to get out of Virginia or out of Delaware and do something national. I made a cold call to the Martin Agency and they have the accounts for Geico and Walmart and one of their vice presidents, Bruce Kelly read what we're doing and said, I want to help. And so that was a huge game changer. So we formed another organization called Read to Them. The Martin Agency gave us our name and then they helped us advertise this. Now Read to Them, my second organization, is a national or international organization. They're in all 50 states and in Canada. Read to Them is very focused on one school at a time. And through Read to Them, we came upon the program of One School, One Book. And if we got 600 copies of Charlotte's Web, Mm -hmm. we started all these students listening to, being read to chapter one at home. And then the next day when they came to school, we had trivia questions and activities about chapter one. And every student, it was positive peer pressure. The fifth grader was doing it as well as the kindergartners. And I remember going to that school, Fox Elementary in Richmond, and the principal said they mobbed me. (laughs) They mobbed me when I go in the cafeteria. So they loved the program. The children loved the program when they did one book together. And then they talked about it on the bus. They talked about it in the home. One parent, I asked him, how do you like this program? And she said, well, my, my third grader brought home this sheet and said I needed to read. I think we were doing Trump or the Swan. And I can read. So I read it to him aloud first night. And my daughter, who lives with me as a four-year-old, they came in the living room, you know, the room we never go in. (laughs) So I had my son and and my daughter and grandchild. For a couple of nights, we were reading that book aloud. But I looked down the hall and there's my oldest son. He's in 10th grade. He hates school. He just (laughs) wants to drop out of school all the time. And I looked and his head was sticking out of his door. So I waved him down. So night after night, we read this book and we love it. She said, I don't know who thought of this program, but I've got my family back. 
We hear those stories all the time. So Read to Them became very successful, and now it's a multi-million dollar nonprofit throughout the nation. And I know in Canada, but I think there's some other countries. But I moved down here to Tidewater 10 years ago. One of my oldest sons had three daughters, and he said, why don't you retire down here? You grew up down here. So we retired down here. So I left Read to Them more or less because Read to Them is Richmond-based and all the boards in Richmond. So I came down here and retired down here. And the second organization I formed, which I rolled over all uh, Read Aloud Virginia into Read to Them. Read to Them is doing very well. That is amazing. And what I like about what you're saying is really you are creating life moments and memories for these families that will stay with them forever. Yes, yes, exactly. You're exactly right. These stories stay with them forever. And parents have told us they've lost children, they've lost parents. I recall one grandmother said, you know, I read Charlotte's Web and and she lost her daughter. And she she read to her when she was in the hospital. She's in Charlotte's Web. And it said, you know, it's one of the best moments we ever had. So life has some tragedies, but these moments, like you say, very memorable and positive. It seems like, Gary, that even though you retired down here, <laughs> you still found something else that you wanted to do, continuing with this passion for education and literacy because that seems to be a theme or a through line, if you will, in your life, how would you say education and literacy has shaped you? Big time. You know, my parents, my mother read to me. And so education was always very valued in our home. And I love those stories. And I had a grandfather, I mentioned that, who would tell me stories about his family and about my great-grandfather. So I realized that that was setting a foundation for me. And I took it for granted, thinking that everybody had that. I realized that they gave me a firm foundation. And then I built my house of literacy. I say every child is homeschooled, uh, some (laughs) formerly homeschooled and some not. But Mm -hmm. the foundation is established in the home. And it's vital. So I know based upon you receiving that from your parents, your grandparents, that you had to port that into your family with Debbie as well. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Our four children are doing very well by the grace of God. And now have 13 grandchildren. And uh, and one thing we did over COVID is that eight of them live in D.C., three of them lived in New Orleans, and two of them live in Richmond, we would do a Zoom call and we would still read a book to about nine of them. They'd Zoom, every week we'd read a book to them How and they cool. loved it. I love that idea. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we, we would read to them when they came here and tell them stories. And I realize now how vital and how important that is. I had three of them here last week. You know, I focused on that, downloading stories and telling about my childhood and just having fun. When you came to this area to retire, you could have very easily have said, listen, I have created a very successful nonprofit. I influenced 
a number of students over the years as a school psychologist, even as a teacher, I am really done now. But instead of that, when you move down here, what did you do, Gary? Well, <laughs> I realized the task was not done. Read to them was focused on one school. I was focused on the whole division. And Read to Them does one book, one school a year. And I realized for those students like Elvester, you have to do multiple books. You have to at least do two. I realized I didn't have peace. I kind of knew what to do. I called up some of the people that I worked with that were focused on divisions like uh, Michelle Demnick in Canada and Lisa St. John's in Bentonville and Kelly Cito, Dr. Cito in Hampton. And they were independent, but they were focused. They had listened to me. We had presented together in Chicago. And they really got the idea that to really make this effective, you've got to do a district-wide multiple books. And so I called them and talked with them. And we set up a conference call. And they felt like they were isolated, that they were doing this, but they didn't have a support system. So during those conference calls, we decided to form another organization called All District Reads. So we did that. I took over a leadership role on All District Reads. And then we started another organization. But the missing piece of the puzzle was we didn't have community ownership. We never did that always before. The, the school did it. It stayed within the school. So we added another component to all district reads that we'd never done before, and that's a community champion. So a Rotary Club, a civic organization, they take ownership in their community. We're kind of a behind the scenes. So now with all district reads, you give it free to the school system for the first two years, and that's for all their elementary students and all their elementary schools. And so you do that for two years, and you have a community champion who puts labels in the books, delivers the books, and gets involved. And then after two years, we stop raising funds. We have to raise $11 per child per year to pay for the books. Then the school system owns it with a community champion. So we continue the program, but we don't give it to the school system for the two years free anymore. Right. They have to pay for the books. So the first two years, you actually provide the books for all students in every one of the elementary schools in a particular uh, division or district. And the goal is for the students to begin to have those incredible memories, those moments yes. where yes. they're growing, somebody is investing in them. And during the two years, the hope is that community champions will come along, be right there to support them, and then they will continue yes. the program after the two years that yes. the students have received the books for free. And another thing the community champion does is they make an auto version of the book. Every family has cell phones. They can take the books home and hit a button on their cell phone and listen to the book. They have their own copy. It ends up being a giant book club. Mm -hmm. And the students are really the focus of it because they each have a book and they feel very much a part of their community by this giant book club. All their friends, their families, their neighbors, 
everybody's doing this book and they're right in the center of it. So it's very affirming to them. And they do two books a year. It's gone beyond what I hoped it would. Really? So tell us more about that. In Suffolk, we did a presentation. The Rotary Club became our community champion last year. They did two books this year. And the reports are from the school system that they've never experienced a community involvement like this. And they've never experienced the excitement. The children are coming to school excited about these trivia questions. And they said attendance is picking up. Children have to be in their desk at 8 a.m. to do a, a trivia question. And at the end of the day, the principal calls out a, a kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth grader and said, you win the trivia question, come up and get a coupon for free ice cream tomorrow. And the children love those <laughs> trivia questions. They really want to know. And if a teacher sees a child in the classroom is not really into the, then she'll have an aide or somebody read to the chapter and it doesn't hurt to read it two or three times to them. Mm -hmm. And then they help focus on the vocabulary. And there's always something every time you hear it, you can pick it up. Suffolk has done a great job. And now all the school systems in Southampton Roads are participating. They're joining in to Suffolk. So we have Norfolk, Portsmouth, Chesapeake, Virginia Beach, and Suffolk and Eastern Shore all signed agreements with us to do this next year. So the whole Southampton Roads, who would believe it? It's, so it's <laughs> gone beyond what I hoped. It's very exciting to see this happening. It's such a nice part of education because I've worked in 35 elementaries and we have great staff on all the elementaries. We have very educated, great staff and I've worked in all these schools and I think we have great schools across the board, whether you're mm -hmm. in Virginia Beach or you're in Norfolk. But what we don't have is consistent children that have a firm foundation in language and stories. So we come along and add that piece and it starts gelling. All of a sudden, those great schools, because these children are now catching on, you invest in them and then they invest in their education because you have to work to do well in school. It takes an investment of time, energy. And if you don't put that investment in, once you start this process and you start seeing schools and children, it really impacts the staff too. They went in teaching to help children to make a difference. And oftentimes they don't feel like they're achieving that. But with this program added to their school system, they do start seeing this change. And that really inspires the teachers to go harder. Absolutely. And I think what you just spoke about, the value of language and vocabulary and storytelling, those will be things that will be important for the child as they continue to mature. Your ability to articulate, your ability to have language to express your emotions or to share your opinions or that ability to tell a story so that someone can understand what you need. Exactly. All of those are things that are really life skills. Yes, exactly. You really, you really get it. Exactly. <laughs> life skills. We're setting them up for success in life. That's what we're doing. We're building that foundation and setting them up. They can still make bad decisions. We all do make 
bad decisions sometimes and we pay the price, but it gives them hope. It sets them up for success in life. And, and there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. Mm -hmm. Every child deserves that. And once we start that process and see the change, then we do more of it. And you can't read enough books to children. Absolutely. And I really do appreciate the opportunity for community partners to come alongside and to find ways that they can participate. Because honestly, the more cheerleaders and supporters that students have, the more they are able to develop that self-confidence to recognize that they have value beyond yes. just a grade. All of that is very, very important. It's vital and it's necessary. It's important. And there's still little people in elementary school and they're just sitting there. I think of them as a little sponge. They're sitting <laughs> to soak it up. They're waiting for you to read another book, read right. another chapter. <laughs> this, they always ask that. Can you read another chapter? Can you read another book? Because they're soaking <laughs> it up. It's wonderful. And books are incredible because they expose people students to new ideas or experiences and is just a very powerful program that you all have created here. I have to ask, I know that you're here and talking about Southampton Roads, but do you have a desire or hope that this will expand beyond where you are now? Absolutely. And we've already had some indication that the, uh, north side of Hampton Roads or, or the eastern side of Hampton Roads, some school systems want to participate. We're just building uh, staff. I have seven staff members that I've worked with since uh, Read Aloud Virginia that have come along. So worked with for 20 years, and they're captivated by this whole idea about really taking on school systems. Like Virginia Beach, that's 31,000 families, households. And each household has 3.2 members, according to the last census. So you multiply 31,000 by 3.2, and you get 100,000 Virginia Beach citizens participating in the program. If you have a 10th grader in the home or a three- or four-year-old, they want to be in the room every night listening to that book. And once they get into the story, it's a story that grabs their attention. Mm -hmm. So we want to do this locally, but we hope to have a national program just like to read to them and do Zoom training. It's doable. It's mm -hmm. really doable now. And it's taken 30 years to get to this point. But now we have a model that's rocking that is community ownership. That was a missing piece of the puzzle. But now with the community champions, we have that and it's working. Well, I am excited about what you're doing and my nonprofit, Keep Your Chin Up, is going to partner with you and sponsor a class in Virginia Beach, which is my hometown. Right. So I'm definitely going to do that at my elementary school alma mater. <laughs> right. right. What do you want for those of us who partner with you and all district reads ADR to get out of this experience? Well, we need people to join our book club. We have to provide two free books. It costs $11 per child per year, and they get two free books. So if you go to our website, alldistrictreads.org, 
it comes up, join our book club. And for $11 a month, you can be a member of our book club and then help provide those books. And then we'll hopefully come to your community and you can volunteer at your local school and help. There are always some children that don't have that experience as solid as others in their home. You can read aloud and one-on-one where they can ask questions or one-on-two That's very vital. What does that word mean? Participate. What does that word mean? Global. What Mm -hmm. is that to ask and fill in those gaps? There's no substitute for that. And that's how you get the meaning of words. And then when they see that word global, they know what it means. And then all of a sudden there's an automatic connection. Mm -hmm. They see that word and then they know that's global. And then they own it the rest of their lives. You can volunteer at a local school but join our book club. That would be very helpful. We'll send you updates about school systems and what's happening with all district reads. We're at an exciting time, but we need volunteers. We need people to join us in our book club and be part of this. I think that's really very powerful, talking about $11 per book, per child. and Per, per student. Per student. Oh, there's two books. So it's $11 per student, and which in for the year, they'll have two books. So the $11 covers both books? Yes, yes, exactly. Stop it, Gary. That is a great deal. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You get it, Clint. You get the whole deal. It's a great deal. For $11, we've had people say, I can't imagine a better way to spend this $11. I can't even think of a way that it would impact so many lives because it changes the trajectory of many child's lives. Mm-hmm. Once they get that foundation, and it's not just a few kids, it's tens of thousands right. of families. And many children that are even in well-to-do families, they go in their bedroom, play on their computer, or do their video games, and the parents do the same thing in their phones. This gets them out and together, and they start communicating, and they find out that this is more rewarding, more fun than being isolated, playing a video game. Absolutely. And the other piece to that is to think about if this is $11 per student for two books per year, this is something that even other students, student clubs can get involved in. It's just a great opportunity for people at any age and any stage in their lives who want to help to move our students uh, to that next level in their lives, but also exactly what you just said. It's changing the trajectory of our students' lives and expanding their world in such an amazing way. Nobody can take away your ability to read and to comprehend. Like you said, once you have that, nobody can take that. And then nobody can take away the memories that you create in these moments when you are sharing the stories, the trivia, all of that together. And so this is just such a powerful program on so many levels. And I thank you so much for creating this. Well, thank you. And and I had many, many people help me all along the way. And I don't want to take all the credit at all because <laughs> I had read to them. We had groups and pediatricians and mm-hmm. we had so much help. But This last organization with the community champion, that is a new development and very exciting. And I think it was a missing piece of the puzzle 
about long-term ownership 10 years from now, hopefully they'll be doing two books a year. Why not? It's very reasonable and it makes a huge difference in the child's home life and for a foundation to build their education on. Now, before we close, there are two things I've got to ask you about. Is it true that you are an author of a children's book yourself? I did. I wrote a, a book, uh, Tad and Polly, and uh, <laughs> we had this home and we had this huge bullfrogs pond. I mean, these huge bullfrogs. So we, we had all these tadpoles. My wife was teaching Head Start, so she asked me to bring some of them in. And we brought an aquarium and with three of them, we, we called the tadpoles Tad and Polly. And the children <laughs> were fascinated because a bullfrog takes two years to develop, but it, it evolves into a frog from a tadpole, and they watched it every day. I wrote a book, Tad and Polly, to go along with that experience and had it published. So we did have some school systems that even did it. We did get bigger, but it was too labor intense (laughs) to put those tadpoles in an aquarium and have a book that goes with it. Right. (laughs) But it, again, motivated students to look at life a little bit differently and to invest. It's an investment in them. And then the last thing is, is it true that you've done four Ironman? Yes, it is. Absolutely. So when I was in my 50s, 52, I was at the gym one day and I was working out without much energy, you know, just kind of filling in the time. But the fellow next to me was working out two or three times as hard as I was. <laughs> and I remember watching his arms and, and the sweat was beating up on his forearms. So I waited and asked him afterwards, what in the world <laughs> has motivated you to work out like that? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, I'm training for an Ironman. And if you want to do one, I'll train you. It was one of those moments in life. I stepped up. I said, I'm in. I want to do Ironman. I wow. never thought about it. Never. So since that time, since 52, I've done four full Ironmans. And that means... You swim two and a half miles, and then you bike 112 miles, and then you do a full marathon. It takes 13 hours. Gary, what did you learn about yourself doing that? I don't quit. <laughs> that is amazing. How long do you train when you do an Ironman? About 13 weeks. You have a mm-hmm. rid to me. I was at the gym this morning on a bike for an hour. So you have to keep in shape. You start running 10 miles and 12 miles and 14 miles and biking 40 and 50 and 60 and swimming. So you have to do each one individually and you never put them together till the day of the race. So you keep working on them in the morning, just like he showed me. And it is doable. Anybody, he was right. Anybody can do it, but you have to commit yourself to it. I wanted to end with that because it is parallel to your commitment to education and literacy. You have not stopped. It has been a continual journey and you have had success at the end and continue to do so. I really appreciate the work that All District Reads is doing. I appreciate the vision that you had. I also think one of the things that stands out about your story is that you were willing to evaluate after 20 years of being a school psychologist and saying, wait a minute, something's not right here. 
I've got to rethink this. Oftentimes people will continue to do the same thing, even though they know it's not working before I even close. I want to know why were you willing to be vulnerable enough to admit, wait a minute, what I have been trained to do, what the thought process was that really is not necessarily working and I want to find a better way. Why were you willing to do that? Because I worked, I cared about those individual students. Like I said, the school psychologist, a lot of times follows them all the way through, has a unique perspective from following that kindergartner all the way to their in high school. And so I kept following those kids. And I remember saying, I'm going to help you. And you have worked very hard to do that. This Platinum Passport Guest Travelogue brought to you by the Platinum Group. Are you ready for some fun, Gary? Okay, okay. (laughs) I'm in. Okay, so tell me, what is your favorite or what was? your favorite trip location? I guess Europe. Shortly after my wife and I got married, we were both teachers. So we backpacked all over Europe. We spent the summer on trains and going to France and Spain and Switzerland. And she knows where we stayed. And I I can't even remember if the country we visited. (laughs) But she's got, we had a ball. We've got married on October the 6th, and we got away for a long weekend because school was in. We were both teachers. Mm-hmm. So this October the 6th, we're going to Paris and have dinner in the Eiffel Tower for Are our 50th wedding anniversary. By the grace of God, we're happily married. We're going to celebrate our success as a couple. That is wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. 50 years and dinner at the Eiffel Tower. That's pretty good. Yes, I think so. (laughs) I didn't expect that. Uh, It's happening. That's wonderful. We've already got our airline tickets, so we're (gasps) moving ahead. Very, very good. Very, very smooth, too, Gary. That's very smooth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay, your favorite traveling accessory. I mean, I do spend a lot of time on the phone. I like to talk (laughs) to people. And now you can, it's amazing. You can talk to people in different states and you can give them a call. You're in New Orleans visiting your children and you're speaking to somebody in Virginia, you know, right? Mm -hmm. And you can call them. So I guess the phone, I use the phone quite a bit. And this program is very different. It's a process of people understanding it. You get it, but you do this, you're into books, but a lot of people don't get it. So I guess the phone is my favorite traveling accessory. Okay, this is a multiple choice answer. You can choose more than one. Your favorite traveling companion, the options are your love, your family, friends, yourself, or other? Yeah, I mean, that's a no-brainer. My love (laughs) and my family, you know, they're our favorite. Uh, Next week, my brother and I are taking some of our grandsons, and we've tried to get granddaughters, too, on the Appalachian Trail 
for a week. We're going to take them camping and hiking on the Appalachian Trail. And we've done that with our children. It's kind of a rite of passage. Sometimes my brothers and I, I had three brothers, and so we would take 10 children at the time on that camping trip. And some of it's hard. Yes. (laughs) And it rains, but it's great memories. That's right in our wheelhouse. That's great. Your travel ID. So what would you say is your travel ID? This is multiple choice two, and you may have more than one answer. Explorer, chill and relax, adventurer, culture craver, foodie. That's a really good question. Uh, my <laughs> wife is a foodie. She kind of runs the show. I follow her. So foodie, but I'm a more of an adventure. I like to swim when you go out to reefs. I like to swim out because I can swim, you know, a couple of miles. So I'll put on my mask and swim a half mile out in the in the ocean. And I like to do that. I like to adventure, try new things. But she's a foodie. And we we usually go with her. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a a good decision to do that, Gary. That's why you've been together for 50 years. See, this is why you're going to the Eiffel Tower in October. Yes, yes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, the final question is, what is or what are your dream destination or destinations? Years ago, I I went to uh, Sydney, Australia to a read aloud summit, the first one they had, but I went by myself, I didn't take my wife. So Mm -hmm. I think we wanna go to Australia or New Zealand. I would like to do that. I think that part of the world is fascinating. I would like to take my wife back, see it. We have some friends there, so. That sounds great. So that will probably, maybe that could be next year. Maybe so. (laughs) Well, it has been so great to spend this time with you. Thank you for sharing your story. The theme for the Platinum Passport podcast is Destination Life Inspired. And you have lived a very inspired life and continue to do so. And my hope is that people will hear what you've done and the way that you have committed yourself to the next generation, to literacy, to reading, to finding your passion and making that work and that they too will be inspired to do the same thing. Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Clinice. It's been a great interview and I really appreciate you get what I'm doing and that's very significant. Thank you. Your platinum passport has been stamped. I look forward to seeing you at our next destination.